2: Afternoon, I, I don't know why I say that. I guess I'm used to doing Black Talk Radio news every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. And uh, but it's Sunday night, so good evening. You are tuned in to Political Prisoner Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. Today is August the sixteenth, twenty fifteen. Again, this is we're still in the month of Black August. Black August recognizing the revolutionary struggle of people all throughout the world, but specifically here in the United States as it pertains to black liberation. All right, so uh, tonight is not, uh well, no night is a good night when we have to do political prisoner radio because that means we have political prisoners, right, being tortured on some U.S. prison plantation somewhere, so it's never a good night when we come on air uh to do this radio program, but tonight is particularly sad because of the assassination slash murder of one of our revolutionaries, and I'm talking about Hugo Yogi Panel. I'm talking about Hugo Yogi Panel who was assassinated on August the 12th. All right, so tonight, Uh, Sister Amijo is really going to lead the conversation because she is more informed um, about this situation than I am, and I'm not one of those persons to get on here and run my mouth about stuff I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, So tonight... Uh, we will be um, led in conversation by the co-host and co-producer of Political Prisoner Radio, which is uh, Sister Amijo Whitlock. Let me go ahead and bring her in. Sister Amijo. we got you on the line. Hello? Can you hear me, Scotty? Yes, we can hear you. Um, okay. Yeah, we got a whole lot of people that called in. Um, So I I know we are scheduled to have two guests on, and I'm saying when I say a whole bunch of people called in, I'm talking about the studio line, that's fine. You can hang out on the studio line, uh, but just keep yourself muted and watch the background noise. Uh, But Sister Amidio, I'm going to turn the program over to you. Can you uh, inform the listeners about our guest tonight to speak about this tragic assassination of one of our revolutionaries?
3: Right. Um, I was actually, um, listening to another presentation earlier in the week. Um, you know, the, a a sister, um, project, uh, George Jackson University Radio and, um, also going through Facebook and I was absolutely stunned and shocked and, um, just immediately, you know, hit with grief to learn that, um, you know, our, our beloved political prisoner had, had been, um, you know, assassinated and, um, you know, immediately began reading, uh, various different newspaper articles to, you know, kind of get an understanding. At first, it was thrown out into the newspaper, you know, oh, you know, it was a riot. It was this. It was that. Um, you know, but then when you hear riot, you know, my thought is, okay, so, you know, what happened between, you know, the inmate and the guard. And then to see that not one guard, you know, was touched and then to just learn that, you know, he was in fact uh, murdered clearly uh was an indication that, you know, it was an assassination um plot that obviously had been um, you know, revenge and um decades um, you know, in, in the making and plotting and planning of these you know, guards and inmates from, you know, various different um, affiliations who um, had hatred who had hatred in their heart. Let, you let know, me share um, this.
2: Let me share this right quick. Um San Francisco mm-hmm. Bayview wrote an article. I linked to it in our program discussion. I mean program description, but let me just share this quick uh paragraph. Hugo Pennell, affectionately known as Yogi Bear was assassinated August the 12th. The news sparked a victory celebration by prison guards on social media. May he ride in hell in good riddance, they typed. Yogi was the only member of the San Quentin Six still in prison, and his role in the events of August the 21st, 1971, the day George Jackson was assassinated, has earned the guards incessant enmity ever since.
3: All right.
0: So apparently, um, yeah, they was on Facebook. I just wanted to, uh, you know, welcome our guest on the
3: line. I'm not sure who we have on our studio line right now. Um do we have um uh professor Wade on the line? Yeah, I'm here. Greetings, uh welcome to the show. Um Thank you. Um our our other callers. Um do we have uh Big Earn and uh Sit You Sadiqi?
1: Yeah, big honor to see
4: you. And this is G Two
3: Greetings, greetings. Um, thank you for um you know, joining us um on the show. So, um essentially I would like to have um sort of like a round table, you know, um I guess a discussion. Um, Brother Sadiqi. if you could um I guess, um, maybe like lead us off and um, you know, uh of the big Earn, if you could um share um your letter with us and uh professor also um you know could give us like your your background and you know i guess give up a, a, a submission um so um brother sadiki the um mic is yours yes well
4: um, okay this is g2 sadiki as we indicated this is we're in the middle of Black August a month that we we um, commemorate those that have made the ultimate sacrifice in this liberation struggle behind prison walls. Uh, we all or most of us who initiate or who got our initiation to uh uh developing our political awareness started behind uh, uh started within California prisons. And uh as a result of uh, Several incidents that happened, uh, for example, the, um, murder of Qatari Galdon, Jeffrey Qatari Garden, August 1st, 1, 1978. It was the following year that we, we started the commemoration, um, activities for Black August. Um, and that included the, the, uh, um, the prison uprising that occurred August 21st, 1971, which Yogi was, a, was a part of. Or was accused of being a part of and also the Marine County incident that happened on August 7th, 1970 involving, uh, George Jackson's younger brother, Jonathan Jackson. So it's kind of heartbreaking to be in the middle of this month commemorating those, those, uh, um, those warriors that, that lost their life as a result of their commitment to the struggle and to find out, actually find out doing a radio program where two or the other San Quentin Six who were, who also charged also along with, with, uh, with the, with the, uh, August 21st, 71 incident, uh, Sumiata Tate and David Johnson, uh, as, as we were relating, as we were relating what happened, uh, we got news of the passing of, uh, of Yogi. So I'll stop there and the other guests in the intro.
3: Hello,
2: brother Big Earn. Yeah, let me just yeah. say this right, right quick. Yeah. Um, give me just a second, Big Earn. Uh, we got Come a on. lot of people called in to the line. Uh, please watch yeah. your background noise uh, so that the listening audience uh, can clearly hear our guest speakers tonight. And we must be uh, succinct because there's another program that comes on after this one, so we have to be off air by 9:55. So let's keep it rolling. All
1: right, uh, excuse me, brother Earn. Go ahead, please. So I, I need to be succinct. Let me say this uh, succinctly. Uh, I grew up, you know, as a, a hoodlum, a thug, whatever you want to call it, and went through all these. I'm 70 years old. I went through all these prisons, man. I went through all the youth authorities, know, Hawaii, and all like that. And when I reached uh, 18 years old, I caught a murder beach and saw that old man and an opportunity to go to O and south that north an opportunity to go to Old wing That's where I met Hugo Fennell, Yogi. And and he was there with Howard Toads. He was there with Young William Christmas. He was there with W.L. Nolan. And I had the opportunity to come to the midst of these brothers. And I wasn't nothing but a low rider, a hoodlum, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I called myself P.N. Tuck. These were some of the toughest brothers in the state of California. And I came, I had already won the heavyweight championship in Tracy, and and I got a murder beef for solitaire, and I wasn't even interested. I wasn't even impressed by nobody that was tough. But these brothers showed me something that transformed my life. Not only were they tough to the enemy, but they were so beautiful to the people. And I saw these brothers, man, showing so much love to the people, to a young brother who would come in. And they would make sure the brother had shower shoes and and uh, writing paper and, and and all the little brothers' basic necessities, man, and it was so beautiful to see this. That transformed my heart. And it showed me and and it showed me the difference that my little so called criminal activities was simply reactionary. And the brothers taught me and showed me, man, that shit, man, we wasn't no criminals. The criminals was the people that took the country that took continents from millions of people. How we gonna call ourselves criminals we out here on the street walking around frustrated and doing forty dollar little robbery and a little knickknack crime? We ain't no criminals, man. The criminals was the one that was putting justice on ourselves and locking us up and calling us demons. And Yoda was one of the brothers that was really instrumental in showing me that and I will love him forever. And uh he, 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 his positive foundation, that was positive. And then the foundation that he gave me was so positive that it helped me grow and it helped me eventually succeed in, in, in my 70 years, in my 70 year um, experience. I've been out four years. That never happened in my whole life. I'm a paralegal. I'm giving back to the community based on the inspiration of Yogi and the other brothers that was done, my unsung heroes that was locked up in Owen. He will forever be my hero. And all those other brothers. Okay, that's what I got
3: to say. Did you um, have um, a letter that you wanted to share? Yes, but I'm out here on the streets and I just,
1: it'd be impossible for me to produce a a letter. Now I'm out here on the streets and I just got called impromptu and I would have mm-hmm. liked to have read the letter, but I can sort of like, let me try to attempt to paraphrase the letter. Yogi was telling me, and I've corresponded to him with all the way up to the last days of the incident of his assassination. And then and all the way up to the last days, he was say, brother, look, man, we got to keep pushing. We got to stay positive. We got to show love. We got to show by example. And we gotta keep moving forward and we got to let the people know who we are and uh that was the essence of what he was saying and he was steadily moving. He was he was like turning that prison cell into what Malcolm X said, we have to turn these cells into exercise, into gymnasiums, we have to turn these cells into workshops and laboratories. We have to turn these cells into monasteries. And, and, and Yogi succeeded in doing that, because I saw how his spirit was becoming so refined and so positive, and all the love and the beauty was coming out of the brother, man. And uh and he's still a, a powerful attacker for me today. And I just wish that the people out there could see this side of him. they always talking about how he was the mission of that. That's because they put themselves in the place of the enemy. He was mm-hmm. not relenting to the enemy. But if they don't put themselves in the place of the enemy, then they can see how beautiful he was to the people.
3: Right. I know um, he was very much involved in the um, Pelican Bay um, hunger strikers um, regarding, you know, the usage of solitary confinement and the shoot.
1: Yes, he was there with the hunger strikers. And he went through Mm -hmm. all that. And and he was trying to... to, uh, Become lower and lower and lower in his profile. And he, and in this profile, he expressed to me in the profile, he said, man, look, I didn't, I didn't advise them to participate. I didn't advise them to not participate. He said, but the only thing that I wanted to do is, uh, he said the brothers got some of their rights. They made their sacrifices and they got, and he was, he was happy and he, he uh, encouraged the people. And, uh, regards to the hunger strike, the most beautiful thing that came out, out of the hunger strike, if you could allow me to just elaborate for just one minute, was that the, all of these little factions, these little racist groups over there in, uh, um, in the short corridor in Pelican Bay, they, uh, produced a document, the cessation of racial hostilities, and they all agreed to the cessation, uh, that means stopping of uh, racial hostility. And they realized that they have been painted in the corner with all this racism. And as long as they was painted in the corner and divided like that, they could never win. And they decided up there all the way in the short quarter to end that. And that was one of the most beautiful things that came out of the hunger strike and they came out of the short corridor from um, Pelican
3: Bay, right? And uh, professor, are you still on the line with us? Yeah, excuse me. what
0: is you... Oh,
3: okay. Can you um can you elaborate further on on that um document and tell us a little bit of you know about yourself and some things that you've been working on?
0: Yeah, I think the. I, I have a copy of that document also, and it went around during the, the hunger strike period. Um, there was a lot of support on the streets from all different sides. Um, and there is some disparity in, as to people who are coming out of uh, institutions over the last few years since the hunger strike as to what the effect of the document has been. Um, and, of course, we don't know that in any kind of, you know, confirmable way. Uh, now, what we do know about the document is it's revolutionary in that it's you know it's clearly a, a call for solidarity uh, across racial factions, the divisions of racial factions within the prison. Um, so it's you know beyond encouraging for all of us, um, and it's signed by a number of people who you know anyone who's been in the system or knows anything about the system will recognize a lot of the names that are signed to it. And they come from all different factions. Um, a lot of them are very senior members of different factions, and you can tell that by the their CDCR numbers. Uh, are many of them are in the A, B, and C, C range, which means they've been, you know, pretty much perpetually incarcerated for the last fifty or sixty years. Some of them. Um, now, the, the kind of the long, the larger context thing that I want to emphasize is. To keep in mind, when things like this happen, that all of these different factions, the, the coalescence and emergence of these factions historically, and the trajectory of the conflicts between them, has been um, the direct result of both official policies and unspoken practices of both the prison administration and individual officers working individually and in concert with one another. Um, kind of the big point is that it's in the institution's interest to encourage inmates to divide themselves into rival fashion um, so that they don't resist the administration and, you know, form solidarity among themselves. Um, so this has kind of been, you know, our carceral policy. Now, I've studied that in the California system. But I'm quite sure that this is, you know, basically the strategy used in partisan institutions throughout the country. Um, and if you think about it, this is the same strategy that was used to dismantle civil rights groups during the 60s and 70s by the FBI and local law enforcement agencies. And if you take it a step further, it's the same divide and, divide and conquer strategy that, you know, Western civilization has used to colonize the rest of the world. Um, so this is certainly nothing new, and even though we may be caught up in the middle of it and experience the tragedy, we always have to remember that the enemy ultimately is not each other, but it is uh, the system that, that creates the circumstances uh, that, that these tragedies occur. In. All
3: right. I just wanted to, um pass the mic back to you, um, brother Sid um, do you have, uh, any, you know, additional comments?
4: Well, I, I think that what the professor said kind of sums it up <clears throat> in terms of how, in terms of, you know, the divide and conquer issue. Um and it was, it was historical. The document was put out, uh, uh by those in, in, in the short quarter in terms of ending, uh, hostilities. Uh, and, 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 and part of the reason we're not able to document how effective it's been is because of the administration's efforts to, uh, uh, prevent it from being, uh, widespread, circulated widespread among, uh, prisoners in different, in different prisons across California. You would think that, that that would be something that would be supported because it's talking about ending these hostilities but as we indicated, one of the ways that they control prisoners is to keep them compartmentalized and, um, and at odds with one another. Uh, 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 I've seen cases when I end up in, uh, I was in Solidarity, um, for, for, for a while in O-Wayne. I spent four years in the shoe. And prior to going to, to, to the sh- shoe, which we refer to as a whole, prior to going there, there were several instances where we saw the guards had manipulated uh, uh, or fostered racial hostility. And we started a group of us started with underground paper, which is a type sheet of paper, sharing with other prisoners uh, different incidents, the time day had happened, trying to wake them up. And as a result of that, they became real repressive. Uh, anybody that had a typewriter, they were smashing the typewriters, trying to uh, find out if that was a type print uh 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 some from, from that paper, uh and then next thing I know, uh Goose hit my serial and locked me up, charged me with uh assault, which never produced it never produced a witness <clears throat> or anything. I was trying in a um training court and sentenced to indeterminate shoot time. And uh shortly after that the paper disappeared so they assumed that they got the right person. As, as far as, uh, who was, who was for the tape problem. So that, those type of tactics that they would use to keep prisoners, keep prisoners separated. And a lot of people knew that still fell victim to it. So that was, you know, when, when they came out with the, uh, in the hostility, that was a historic move that a lot of people probably didn't even realize. Oh, man.
3: Can you um actually tell us like I guess a little bit more um of the history? Um, I know that when when recently with um of course the assassination of um our beloved, um there's been a a lot of writings um also adding of course, you know, the um you know, the murder of of George Jackson the assassination of George Jackson um, in the yard. And a lot of lies also, you know, being put out, you know, about him, you know, as well. Uh, You know, the historical lies that um, the system likes to tell. Um, But a lot of people don't understand that we're discussing, you know, these issues of race inside of the prison um, and looking at um, different um, factions I don't think a lot of people understand that even in the um, death of uh, George Jackson, um, race was also a mitigating and motivating factor um, amongst certain individuals um, who have actually, you know, spoken um, in documentaries to explain, you know, what their role was actually, you know, in his assassination. So I guess, could somebody explain, you know, some of the history here, um, you know, with, um, Yogi and, and George and, you know, how, you know, where, where this, the history of the, and the, and the vendetta, um, you know, has happened. I know we spoke about it just a little bit, but, you know,
0: um, I'll be happy to take a stab at that. Um, now, first off, I just want to start off with the caveat that, what I know about these, uh, about these matters comes from research that I've done interviewing people who spend a lot of time in prison, and particularly in the courtroom and Pelican Bay shoes. So I, and what I've read about, you know, all of this over the years, but they and I, like anyone, is susceptible to error. So if the other guests hear me say anything that they think isn't accurate, by all means, I'm happy to be corrected, and uh, I certainly would prioritize the perspective of people who have been incarcerated over myself, which I have not. Um, so, so the the Nigel is is very correct that you know this the race concept is kind of a shadow over this all of these um, these uh, conflicts between the different factions, and the the factions are roughly racialized. Um, now, I think we should first consider the history of how these factions started. Um, and though many of us are familiar with the prison system today and the demographics in the prison system today, they were very different during the period that these groups started. The, uh, the Aryan Brotherhood itself started in the mid to late 1950s and was, and emerged out of a, a kind of a prison gang for white inmates called the Bluebirds. Um, and what caused them to change the name and to adopt at that time a white supremacist ideology is it wasn't something that they came up with their own. Um, it was something that they got from the guard. And it's important to remember at that time in the fifties, you know, much of the white population in this country were outwardly white supremacists and were not ashamed about, you know, if there was there was an open debate in the country going on among white people as to whether white supremacy was you know, something people should be in favor of, and many people were. And so many inmates had that kind of ideology going into the system, and certainly many of the guards, which at that time virtually all of the guards were white, um, many of the guards had this ideology too. And the guards would cast, uh, you know, pamphlets and books and material to the white inmates in order to encourage them to, you know, assume this ideology of white supremacy. Um, and that's where the original name comes from. Now, whether the group is an ideologically white supremacist group now or is more of a, you know, a hybrid criminal organization is debatable. Uh, but that's how it was started at that time. And at that time, not only the majority or all the guards were white, but the majority of the, the prisoners were white as well. Um, in fact, or, you know, through the 50s and 60s, there were more white inmates Systems and there were black and Latinos combined. And if you look at the graphs that I've created, um, it doesn't actually flip until about start to flip until about 1980. So we think of now as you know prisons being filled with people of color, but back when these groups started, it was the other way around. Most of the Indians were white. It had both the support of the guards and had the medical majority. Um, they were able to basically, you know, uh, harass and intimidate non-white inmates with impunity, and that was something that both black and, black, you know, inmates endured you know, up until the civil rights movement era when these when these groups started. Now we know that the you know the the founding of the DGF was in response to this these type of attacks and harassment by white inmates by AB members particularly that's why the group was formed you know was a defensive organization um from the from the beginning as well as being an ideological organization a uh, revolutionary organization um and uh, if you look at the origins of the major latino um faction from southern california This was also something that the guards and the and the administration had a role in. That that group was started by what at the time were juveniles, a bunch of teenagers, um, in response to being put into circumstances where likewise they had been victimized by other boys um, in the in the juvenile population. Um, And when they banded together and and gained you know the upper hand against the kids who had been targeting them. The administration thought they'd be, um, coy and split the boys up and send them to different institutions so that the, they'd be kind of fresh fish for the older inmates to prey on. Um, and of course, you know, the way that faction emerged was instead of being victims, the boys started attacking anyone who, you know, who threatened them. Um, and so that's how the, you know, the Southern California Latino faction kind of emerged. So really all, you know, the, the original, A.B.'s emergence was due to you know agitation by the staff and um, and they had always been favored by the staff and the emergence of these other groups kind of came up in response to that the abuse of, of white inmates and the staff and the black and Latino groups were actually I don't know about allies but certainly weren't adversaries until the late 70s and and that's we can see that in the assassination of George Jackson itself, where two members of the Southern California Latino faction actually assisted in the escape attempt. Um, I can't remember one of them one of their names is Luis uh, Louis Follett Salamante, who went into protective custody I think in the late eighties or early nineties, and I can't remember the other the name of the other person that was involved. But we can see just from that that they're that there wasn't this kind of interracial animosity, at least not between black and brown at that time. Um, The reason that that animosity came up is because as later in the 70s, as the demographics of of the prisons changed and um, black inmates started to get the upper hand in the conflict with the white inmates, the white inmates were, um, you know, put in a very precarious position. They were... Their faction was almost, you know, pushed out of existence basically. Um but because they had a close connection with the staff, they were the primary
2: uh, we're, kinda, we're kinda losing you, Professor. Um yeah, if you could just hang on a second, we're overdue for our station identification break. We'll take that right quick and then we will uh come back. Okay. All right. You're listening to okay. Political Prisoner Radio. We broadcast every Sunday night at nine o'clock PM Eastern time right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Brothers and
1: sisters. No, Brothers and sisters. I don't know what this world is coming to. <laughs>
2: You are tuned in to the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts and live program scheduling, visit us on the web at BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. All right, and welcome back to Political Prisoner Radio. We have about 25 minutes left in the program. Be sure to stay tuned for The Lotus Place, which comes on following this program. Professor, please continue.
0: Sure. Sure. Um, so, because the white inmates were favored by the white guards, they were the primary conduit for contraband that was coming in. And, of course, back then there were only five prisons in California, all of which were located in Northern California. So, prisoners from Southern California really had no way of receiving support from back home, if there was even anyone back home that cared about them enough to try and help them. So, inmates depended on the trade in contraband in order to support themselves, to so buy Shoes or soap or you know whatever you think, you know whatever you need to get by in prison, um, and so that became the catalyst for Latino inmates and Black inmates turning against each other. The Latino inmates were trying to preserve the the you know the connection between the staff and the white inmates to keep the the contraband coming in that they were you know able to support themselves off the trade from. Um, and, of course, that war, you know, was in full swing in the 80s, and that's when many of the, the acts of violence um, that, you know, people are familiar with occurred during that time of conflict between these three different groups. Um, and it kind of came to an end in the mid to late 80s, and then when they opened Pelican Bay, the shoe program there and the shoe in Corcoran, most of the combatants, were basically locked down from then on, so they didn't have access to each other to continue the dispute. Um, so, kind of fast forward to today, you know, many many of these people, including Mister Pennell, had been in the shoot for another for you know twenty five years, ago. and so these
2: we're losing you again.
0: Resolved, and that's what we're seeing now as they're releasing people out of the shoot program back onto main, onto general population yards. These animosities that have been kind of in in hibernation all this time suddenly they have access to each other again to be able to carry out on them. And, And in my opinion, that's what happened in this case.
4: Okay, I'd like to respond to some of the comments of Mary Professor, if I can. Yes. Thank
3: you. Okay.
4: Um, I'm, I'm, it appears that you're saying that um, up until the uh, early 80s, there were only five prisons in uh, California. and They were all in Northern California, which is not accurate. There were several prisons that in Southern California particularly guidance Center, which is where most people were processed. It came from, from Los Angeles area, San Diego area. It'll be processed through Chino Prison, which is, which is in existence, of uh, since the sixties, uh, earlier. Uh, also, uh, uh, in reference to Luis Talamantes who was placed to take the custody. Luis Talamantes was one of the San Quentin 6 who were charged with the, uh, incident that occurred in, um on August 21st, 1971. And, uh, he was one of the, he was one of the few that you was know, exonerated and he was in the shoe until his release from prison. Uh, this is the first I've ever heard of him being placed in Detective custody. Now, he, he, Lewis was, uh, we referred to him as Bato, and Bato was at one point associated with Emmy, uh, but because of his polarization and that's something that, that, um, and this is the understanding that one of the things about Commander George Jackson is that he was universal in his appeal to prisoners in general, uh, uh, trying to criticize all prisoners to help us understand what our, our circumstance was, uh, with our person. And that included, uh, Latino and white prisoners. Uh, so it wasn't this, 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 like, this clear dichotomy where there was Black on one side and white on the other. Uh, uh, as you did indicate, a lot of the, uh, ADs as a result of, or uh, they were favored, uh, as a result of, uh, uh being in actual guards where other prisoners weren't. But, uh, uh I want to be clear that George's, George's political beliefs, which, which, I uh, was passed down, I wasn't, I didn't go, I didn't go to prison until 1976. Which is which is seven years after George' was assassinated but the the uh, the um, the awe of him was still present and that's been that's been passed down for one generation to the to the next in terms of those that incarcerated and those in, uh, uh, out in the larger prison who, who've been affected by uh, by uh, his examples um, and that included, I mean, I ran into, they're in the minority, but I ran into some prisoners, uh, while I was incarcerated, some white prisoners while I was incarcerated, who didn't share the same, uh, uh, thinking that, as, as, as ADs, uh, but because they were in minority, and if they expressed any type of relationship with someone that was, that was not white, uh, they, they usually were in a position where uh, physical harm comes on. So I just want to make that distinction.
0: Thank you, thank you. Um, can I add something else, um, which is important? It's kind of a, a direct role that the staff and administration have played in perpet- in provoking and perpetuating these conflicts, which is kind of setting inmates up to be attacked by other inmates, or setting inmates up to fight each other in order to give the the staff the opportunity to have the excuse to shoot them, right? And we know that that's basically how uh, W.L. Nolan was assassinated. Um, The administration moved him to Fulton and put him on a yard with a bunch of A.B. leaders where they knew there would be a big fight. And the guard on the catwalk opened up with a rifle and, Three BGF members were killed and one AB member was lightly wounded. So, you know, you kind of um, tell what yeah. happened in that case. But, and then, you know, the, there's of course been a lot of speculation on what really happened in the George Jackson assassination. My own personal opinion is that he, he was about to be set up for a similar situation and he felt that it was coming and he was a large man who was, you know, very well trained. And he overpowered the guards and, and won the incident. <laughs> I don't think they were planning to make the escape, but of course that's my own speculation. Um, but of course, yeah. if, if that's true, then, then that's another clear case of the staff, you know, trying to set up a situation for an inmate to be killed. And now, of course, anyone who's spent any amount of time in prison has either experienced this personally or has seen it happen to other people, which is that the staff commonly take inmates and, you know, put them in.
4: Yes,
1: yes. They pro- know prof- enemies. Yeah, they professor. At,
0: you know, accidentally unlock the doors and, you know, all of those type of things, which is, I would say, is ubiquitous in the prison system in this country.
2: Yeah, p- professor, can you um, hear me? Sure. Yeah. 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 I I just wanted to add, we do a program um, on Wednesday nights called New Abolitionist Radio as we try to do our part to spark a new abolitionist movement. So these stories um, are, are, as you are stating, we report on them all the time. The mainstream media had, well, it's not really mainstream, the big corporations, but, you know, we comb the Internet for any kind of news reports about these situations. And, And I think it was one of the geo group run facilities where they had what it was called, known as gladiator school, where the prison guards would have the inmates fighting each other to the death, like, you know, for their entertainment. So this goes right. on all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I actually have, um, I've interviewed 87 for, uh, people who've been formerly incarcerated in the California system, um, both black and Latino. Um, and business companies, virtually every one of them reported either experiencing or seeing happen to people. Um and I've also interviewed people who who were who fought in the Corcoran gladiator school as it was called back then. Um hmm. and they insist that those types of incidents are still going on. It's just that at that time a video came out so the mainstream media. Okay. Um but I think anybody who's been in a carceral setting, you know, or at least everyone I've ever talked to or heard from Everyone experiences this and sees this happen to people. And it's kind of like a an everyday practice that's part of the staff culture, you know. In some cases, staff do it because they're just bored and they want to see a fight. In some cases, staff do it in order to take an inmate that they have a reason to want to see something bad happen to, like Mr. Pennell, of course, um, and put them in a situation where they're at a disadvantage compared to their rivals. Um you know, it could be, uh, I've heard, um I've heard that, that guards often bet on these fights and just because they're bored, they'll, you know, let a couple inmates out who are known for fighting well and bet on the outcome, you know.
1: Wow. So it's really wow. a,
0: it's kind of a, a institutional cultural practice. Right. It's that, really unacknowledged by the system.
2: Right. Um, We have about we have about 10 minutes left in the program. Yeah. Well, we got a little more than two minutes, about 12 minutes left in the program. But before we end, just want to recognize, um, you know, as we try to inform people when a political prisoner has a birthday. And so today is the birthday of Hannah Shabazz Bay. Um, and he is part of the Virgin Island Five, a colony of the United States of America. You can get more information on his case at denverabc.wordpress.com. We have a link to the page that gives you information about the Virgin Island Five. So we just want to acknowledge um, Hannah Shabazz Bay's birthday today.
4: go to Hannah. Well, Again, I'd like to, to, uh, share something, if I can, in terms of a reference to W.F. Noah, and you're, you correct in your, your time as well. Um, him being set up, him, uh, Sweethead, Miller, you know, including others, uh, that didn't occur in person, but that was an action in Solidarity o And what's significant about that is that they had desegregated the yard. The yard used to be segregated. They desegregated the yard and uh uh it wasn't it was actually the the gun the gun tower sits on, not the gun tower. It sits on the roof of a building. And where it was where it's situated two yards, one is referred to as, as uh as yard side because it faces or it's in the direction of the general population yard. The other side, is the hospital side which is where they were. And when Depp, when when the fight broke out or, or when he was set up uh, uh, to fight this, 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 uh, 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 Aaron brother, Aaron A.B. and the A.B. was, was, was injured by a ricochet. George, I mean, W.L. Miller was, was, was murdered, and the other two brothers went to his aid, and significant of that is because there's a gate that separates the, uh, the yard from the, from the, uh, the, uh, infirmary, the hospital. So they, was, they were trying to get him over to that gate so they can give him some assistance and they too were shot and killed. Uh, this, this is what precipitated the incident where you have the there three with George Jackson, Peter Drungle, and, and John Kesh. When another guard was was uh, when a guard was killed, as a result of them making the not to prosecute the guard, they killed the
0: three on, on Owens Yard.
3: Hello? Hello. Hello. Yeah, I'm good. I, I, okay. I agree with all that. I just wanted, yeah. right. I just wanted to, I guess, um, we only have a few more minutes, um, left in the show and I wanted to get, um, everyone's, uh, closing, um, comments. Um, you know, um, first to you, um, Brother Ziggy, then, um, you know, Big Earn and, um, you know, Professor Wade.
4: Okay, well, I uh, appreciate the opportunity for us to be able to come on and share this information. This information is really important, not just to what goes in California, because as I was pointing out earlier, this affects uh, prisons across the country. This is part of the prison industrial complex that's designed uh, uh, not to to uh, address the issue of crime in our community, but as a form of business, you know, uh, a new form of slavery.
2: That's what we call it. We we tell people the 13th Amendment never abolished slavery. There's a big giant exception clause that says that they can put you back into slavery as punishment for crime. So it, to me, it is it's slavery. And of course, people check out the book. Slavery by another name is also a film by that same name.
4: Mm-hmm. That's, my, that's my piece.
2: Sister Mijo, you still with us? Hello? Okay, yeah, we yes, got you.
3: um Big Aaron, you still um with us? Hello? For the big Aaron? Uh, okay, I guess he's not are you still on the line with us?
2: I don't I don't know Sister Mija.
3: Okay. I think he wanted to drop it. um um process your um final comment?
0: Um, just to kind of think of what you know, what our collective response should be, you know, when we it's so easy for us to recognize that uh you know, the 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 crux of colonialism is this divide and conquer strategy. And if you look through the civil rights movement, if you look what happened both on the outside and on the inside during that time, and since then, you know, the state will do everything that it can to undermine Any, any attempt, uh, by inmates and by people on the outside to organize and collectivize in solidarity, um, across racial lines and, and within them. And, and that's what always brings the worst state repression is when, you know, when, when there's leadership in the black and brown community, when there's cooperation between, you know, marginalized people, the state comes down the hardest and the reason is the state... Professor? Okay. And so that's that's the strategy that we should pursue is is doing exactly what they're trying to undermine. Hello?
3: Hello? Hello, we lo- we lost you there for a minute. Can you um Yeah, I have
0: He
4: was
3: saying
0: Um, about. You know, the, the, what, what garners the, the most intense state repression is, is when leadership emerges in the black and brown communities, and particularly when there's the potential for, you know, marginalized people to form together in solidarity and resistance to the system. And that's always what the state comes down hardest on, and that's always what the state's divide and conquer strategy is aimed at undermining. And so, when people think "What can we do?" you know we should be doing what they're trying to stop us from doing, which is to to have that leadership in our community to look up to our elders to to have these conversations and to listen to each other and to try and find common ground you know to as my generation said, to form like Voltron so that we can chop Godzilla's head off, you know.
2: And I think it would be appropriate to point out that um, Mr. Parnell played that vital role with, with his uh, Latino background and being able to speak Spanish and that, you know, I read about how he was able to form those alliances because of his ability, you know, being bilingual. Yeah,
0: so someone like him, you know, is certainly, I mean, of course, his act, you know, his political act, Political activity, you know, over the years makes him a target for the administration and his involvement in the George Jackson escape, you know, but certainly people who could form that bridge are particularly targeted. You know, they're a particular threat. And, um, really a lot of us can be that. You know, we should all try and, to the best of our ability, like the, like the peace treaty document, you know, said, you know, if at all possible, we should try and find some way of, of, you know, working things out instead of, you know, playing into the devil's game of always attacking each other, you know?
2: Agreed. Uh, Sister Mijo, we, we have a few more minutes. Uh, did anybody else have any final comments? Hello? Did we have a
3: big arm back on the lawn? Okay. All right. Um, Brother Siddiqui, you had, you had a comment?
4: No, I, I didn't have any comments. I will I was, saying, I think Bigger and was gone. It was the ball did But, uh, uh, just, just to piggyback on, on what Professor said in terms of, um, uh, not allowing ourselves to get trapped into the game that they play, uh, and, Ways to create dialogue. And I think that, that, that was one of the, the strong points with those in the short quarter who, who, you see, when I refer to the short quarter, we're talking about Pelican Bay, uh, there was a section within Pelican Bay in the SHU program where, uh, uh, those that were considered, uh, that they, they referred to as the most dangerous and all that were in the short quarter. They're the one that made up the, uh, organizer of, of the, uh, The hunger strike, uh, both, both times in, in, uh, in Pelican Bay, uh, and they're the ones that, that began to have dialogue among themselves across racial lines and created this document, uh, uh, to end hostilities, to, to influence and encourage other prisoners, particularly those in general population, not to fall victim to things that we have been subjected to, uh, uh, for the past 30, 40 years where we were divided, uh when we when we shared a common goal. And you know, we were all prisoners. And <clears throat> don't you know, people don't believe the hype about the all this you know, they they'll take one incident of violence and highlight it as though that's something that happens every single day. And it's not the case. Um uh, so I, I just think that we definitely need to uh I would like to encourage people to do that to create uh what the professor said in relationship to Dialogue and, um, and uh, communicating with one
3: another. I guess, um, as my last comment would be that one of the things that we see um, happening across the country is that more and more youth are being charged as adults and there is a, a, a dynamic shift. Um, in the present population with where you have this dichotomy of, you know, older prisoners that have been there for, you know, 30, 40 years versus some of the new people. Um, what I guess, what would our, I guess, our speakers on the line, what would you say to some of the, um, the youth? that are are now um incarcerated
0: um, you know one of the big problems I think we have um both in the system and on the street is that a lot of the younger generation has kind of you know said ask the elders, you know we don't care what they say, they're washed up, you know that kind of that that kind of way of thinking and and I think that is you know, a huge threat to all of us. Um, that, that, and it's another way that the, that the system encourages us to become our own worst enemy. I think, you know, young people who are incarcerated should, you know, look up, look, look to your big homies, you know, look to people who've been there for a long time and who've been through this and who've, you know, experienced this manipulation and this violence and all this, you know, and learn from their mistakes, you know, talk to them. Get the breakdown from them. Get the history from them, you know, so you can understand the situation that you're in. And when these, you know, divide and conquer strategies are used against you, you can recognize them for what they are and, you know, not take the bait. You know, and that not taking the bait will get you out sooner because you won't be catching new cases for no reason. Um, and you'll everyone will have a better ride if, you know, everybody's not all trying to kill each other and do the, you know, do the devil's work for him, you know? All right.
4: You know, uh, in relationship to that, um, Begun works with a program called Fair Chance Project, uh, which was de- developed by former lifers that, uh, that parole. And one of the things they started was this Walk the Yard program where, where, uh, lifers would mentor uh, young people and help prepare them for parole hearings or, uh, do their due, due diligence in, in getting all the, uh, necessary, uh, requirements out of the way so they can have a successful parole date. So that's, that's in line with, with, uh, what you're referring to in terms of, uh, you know, them getting with the big homies, uh, which is having some success within the California prison system.
3: Thank you. I want to um, thank everyone for, um, you know, joining us tonight, um, on the show. Um, my, uh, once again, my condolences to, um, everyone, um, who's been touched, um, by Yogi and, and his work and, uh, his life. And, um, thank you for being on the show with us.
2: and I just want thank to let Yeah I want to thank everybody for joining us And I hope that you know People take to heart everything that was said On today's program And I hope that they will also Be moved to join The movement to free Our political prisoners And, and I just want to give you a preview Next week we will have Fia Gaza of the Malcolm X Grass uh, Roots Movement Join us to talk about Making the plight or keeping the plight of our political prisoners on the global stage is very important, you know, that we do everything we can to honor the sacrifices of of our elders and uh, do everything we can to free them, you know. So that that's all I got. Again, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Um, we are going to close out the show as we get prepared to bring on the Lotus radio program right here on the Black Talk Radio Network. Peace and blessings to everyone.
1: They get home that you never wake up because they never want to meet him on the back of the
0: show. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky.
1: Lucky?